So we want to focus on this whole idea about culture and crossing cultures, um, both relationally and redemptively crossing cultures, if that makes sense. So just, you know, crossing cultures, making friends, those kinds of things, but also then gospel. So page seven. Um, we're going to read uh, these two paragraphs, this little story here. And then uh, after we read that, I want you to just turn around to a few people, just kind of make a small group in your chairs there with a few people, and just talk through those questions below. And then we'll, we'll discuss it out loud. I want you to talk through those questions below. So, Jordan, could I have you just read those two paragraphs there out loud for everyone? Sure. And just people follow along as she reads. A typhoon had temporarily stranded a monkey on an island in a secure, protected place. While waiting for the raging waters to recede, he spotted a fish swimming against the current. It seemed obvious to the monkey that the fish was struggling and in need of assistance. Being a kind heart, the monkey resolved to help the fish. A tree precariously dangled over the very spot where the fish seemed to be struggling. At considerable risk to himself, the monkey moved far out on a limb, reached down, and snatched the fish from the threatening waters. Immediately scurrying back to the safety of his shelter, he carefully laid the fish on the dried ground. For a few moments, the fish showed, showed some excitement, but soon settled into peaceful rest. Joy and satisfaction swelled inside the monkey. He had successfully helped another creature. Okay, not a true story. <laughs> no, no animals were harmed, right? <laughs> okay, but, but go ahead and just find a few people around you you know, in your row or behind you or whatever, and just discuss those few questions. <laughs> All right, let's talk about this. What was the monkey's motivation? What's that? To help, right? Mm -hmm. He wanted to help. Maybe a little bit was selfish. He wanted to feel good about himself, you know. What words would you use to describe the monkey as he went out over the raging water? Courageous. Okay, he was courageous. Mm -hmm. What else? What? Okay, foolish. Why? Because he didn't really know what he was doing. Because <laughs> he didn't really know what he was doing, right? Yeah, he showed some courageous, some bravery, or whatever. It appeared that way, but he was also foolish. He didn't really know what he was doing, right? So, so why did the monkey help the fish by taking it out of the water? He saw a problem and was trying to fix it. Okay. Yeah. Or what he thought was a problem. What he thought was a problem, right? Yeah. And so what did he assume about fish culture? That it was the same as monkey culture. That it was the same as his. So 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 why why was that? I mean, well, why, how do you think the fish felt about the help it received? It wasn't really help, was it? It really wasn't help. It actually hurt. It actually killed him. Right? You know, you think about that, you know, this especially relates to going to the cultures and think about, especially when we go in short term. How do we generally uh, measure the success of a short term mission trip? What we did, how it made us feel. A lot of times we come back, we have no idea what really we left behind. Did we help? Did we hurt? Did, mm hmm. Um, the, the, I mean, Think about a couple of these words here. The fish seemed to be struggling. Was the fish struggling? No. No? 
I mean, he was he's a, he's a fish in water. That's what he does. But he seemed to be struggling, at least through the through the monkey's eyes, he was struggling. And when he put him on the water and he started flop, or put him on the dry ground and started flopping around, was the fish showing showing excitement? No, but through the monkey's eyes, he was right. And so, because he didn't understand the culture, he misread everything that was happening. You think they're like you, and that you show on your face how you feel, and we express ourselves. And so you don't know what's going on inside their life. So, and so what advice would you give the monkey for future situations where he would like to help? Take time to try to understand their culture. Yeah. Take, take time to understand their culture, right? Understand, ask questions, figure this out. What, what does help, what help do they really need? And not, not going assuming that through our own lenses that, that we know what they need. So turn the page, and we're going to look at the story in Acts. If you have your Bibles, turn to Acts 17. I want to look at this story of Paul's life interacting in another culture. And from this, we're going to draw four principles of sharing Christ in a crisis culture. So if you're, if you're in Acts 17, um, I'm going to read 16 through the end of the chapter through 34, and just follow along as I read. And uh, just to give some background, Paul had run into some trouble. The brothers sent him down to the coast, and Silas and Timothy stayed in Berea, and Paul is waiting for them to catch up to him. All right? So in verse 16, and following as I read, it says, While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, well, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious, for as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now what you worship is something unknown, I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything, because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and determine the time set for them, and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent." For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, 
But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. So looking at question one there in verse 16, it says, what was Paul doing while waiting in Athens? Talking to people. Yeah. He, he was observing what was going on, right? Observing the city. He, 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 was, he was observing with purpose. He wasn't just sightseeing. You know? He was observing the city with purpose. And so as he observed the city, he saw a city that was full of idols. It says he was, he, he was greatly distressed, or maybe some translations say his spirit was provoked in him. Why was this? Because notice what it says here, Paul, he saw a city full of idols, and what he saw, what greatly distressed him, what provoked his spirit, was glory due to God alone was being robbed by idols. In 1 Corinthians, he said, idols are nothing, but, he said, those who offer sacrifice to them are participating with demons. So as he saw those idols, he knew those idols weren't just empty statues. But he knew that demonic beings were using those idols to rob glory from God. And so, in our books there, principle number one for sharing Christ in a crisis culture, be jealous for God's glory. Be jealous for God's glory. That's what Paul was. He was jealous for God's glory. He saw God's glory being robbed. Tomorrow, when you go to the Hindu temple, you're going to see uh, a city full of idols. The temple, the worship area has like, I don't know, 18 or 19, 20, something like that. Many temples patterned after major temples in India, housing about 21 different Hindu gods and goddesses. So you're going to see a place full of idols. And I challenge you, when you go there, don't just observe culture, observe architecture, observe things, but realize what's going on. <laughs> Satan is robbing glory from God that's rightfully due to him alone. And that's what Satan has been from the beginning, right? From the very beginning, we, we have the five idols of Satan. I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will, I will be like the Most High. He wanted glory from God. I mean, why does Satan work so hard to... To deceive people into hell. I mean, Satan doesn't rule hell. Satan's not worshipped in hell. What does he benefit from taking people to hell? Other than, for every person he brings to hell, God has lost a worshiper for eternity. Two things we pray that when people come through Engage Global is, yes, one, we want your compassion for lost Hindus, lost Muslims, lost Buddhists, lost tribal animists. We want your compassion for lost mankind to be increased. But, but maybe even more than that, we want a passion for God's glory among the lost to be increased. Because that is the sustaining motive. You see, a, a compassion for the lostness of people may get us dabbling in missions. But a passion for God's glory is what will sustain us. So, be jealous for God's glory. That's the sustaining motive. So verse 17, then, it says, What did Paul do in response to his passion for God's glory? And Nate, you said what? He went in conversation, right? It says he, he reasoned in the synagogue, or in the, the marketplace, with those who happened to be there. That word reason is, is this word dialogue, right? So he got into conversations with people. And where did he engage in these conversations? 
marketplace, and the synagogue. And so principle number two is this, is engage the person and not the religion. So, so Paul went in not, not, not starting to preach, but he went in there and had conversations with people. When we relate, engage the religion, not the person, what happens? It just leads to arguments, right? It just leads to arguments. Uh, I find interesting verses Paul said to Timothy, said it this way. You see what's going on in, in our world today. And, uh, you know, watching the news and the travel bans and this and that. And a lot of people, and not just people, but a lot of Christians in this country have a lot of misplaced anger when it comes to Muslims. Right? They're angry with Muslims. Now, we have to realize that Muslim and Islam are two different things. Islam is a religion. Muslim is a person who follows Islam. Who created Islam? Well, I believe it's from the devil. And it's meant to deceive people into hell. And so we can hate Islam. But a Muslim is a person created by God. Who should we be angry with? A Muslim who has been deceived by Satan and believing what they've been told their whole life? Or should we be angry with Satan who has deceived Muslims? Does that make sense? And so Paul said to Timothy, he said it this way in, in the second letter to Timothy. He says, don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Those who oppose him, he must gently instruct and in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth and that they will come to their senses and listen to this, and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Paul went out and engaged the people with, with first of all, with a God-centered passion. <laughs> Satan, I'm, I'm distressed because Satan is robbing people of glory. I'm not mad because these people are worshiping idols. I'm mad because Satan is using these idols to draw people away from God. And so he went out and began to reason with them, right? So question number five, top of page nine. What was the response to Paul's message in the marketplace? See, we, we see three things, three specific statements that are mentioned there, right? Number one, they said, what's this babbler trying to say? Right? And so this word babbler is a word that means seed picker. It's like somebody who is trying to sound smart, but they only have pieces of the truth. And so what's this babbler trying to say? Um, and then they said he seems to be advocating foreign gods. And why'd they say that? It says because he was preaching about Jesus and the resurrection. And so he seems to be advocating foreign gods because he's talking about Jesus and the resurrection. So it sounds like they thought Jesus and the resurrection were some kind of foreign god that they never heard of. Right? And so... They said, well, we need you to come explain more because you're presenting some strange ideas, right? So question six then says, what caused this response to Paul's message? The way he was sharing. Yeah. The take he had on it. Yeah, let's get into that more. Turn, we're, let's look at the appendix on page 39. There's an appendix. And I want to I get a little bit deeper in this whole thing of culture. Um, and understanding uh, what caused this confusion, and then we'll go back and finish up the passage. But on page 39, 
You need to think about culture. It's kind of like an onion. You know how an onion, you just kind of keep peeling away the layers to get to the core, to the center. So it's kind of like that. So culture is like, like an onion with all these layers. And the first layer of culture that when we enter a new culture, first thing we see is behavior. Behavior. And that answers the question, what is done in this culture? Okay, what is done? So every, every culture has rules of behavior. Things that you do, things you don't do that are proper in culture, right? So like, um, like in Asian culture, when you come to a house, you take your shoes off before you enter the house. That's just, that's just culture. That's one of the rules of behavior, right? And so my whole adult life almost has been spent really in the Asian community and with Asians. And so I always have learned to take my shoes off. The funny thing is that when I go to my American friend's house, what do I do as soon as I come to their house? I take my shoes off before I go in. And many times, my white friends will look at me and say, what are you taking your shoes off for? Oh, I thought, okay. How many of you came in here and didn't take your shoes off? Yeah, right? Because that's just, yeah. Our Asian groups that come through, they always take their shoes off. Right? So it's just different rules of behavior. All right? So second layer, those behaviors are based on values. And values answer the question, what is good or what is best? Behaviors reflect those values. Those values are based on, then, on beliefs. Answers the question, what is true? Because values aren't just selective randomly. Based on beliefs, what is true? And then we get to the core of what we call worldview. Answers the question, what is real? What is real? And that's reflected in the beliefs that, that, that go to the, to the values of behavior. So looking on page 39 then, it, number two, it says, at the heart of every culture is worldview. Okay, so what is worldview? Letter A, worldview is like a pair of glasses. Okay, worldview is like a pair of glasses. And, and we look at life through these glasses, and they filter everything that we see. Right? And it's how we explain everything that happens. All right? So letter B, different cultures look through different glasses. Different cultures look through different glasses. And so these, if, they, if worldview are like a pair of glasses that filters everything we see, it's how we explain everything that happens. Different cultures look through different glasses. Let me illustrate in a couple, couple of ways. Um, I have a Korean-American friend. She used to come to our church. I planted a church in San Diego in Asian community. Korean-American girl came to our church. And she talked about growing up as a Korean-American, Korean home, but like, you know, public school and those kinds of things. And, and so at, when she's at school, and she'd get in trouble, and the teacher would be scolding her, right? And if I'm, if I'm, if I'm a teacher and I'm telling her, you know, you're getting in trouble, what do I say? Look at me when I'm talking to you, right? Because that shows respect, right? And then she goes home, and she gets in trouble, and her mom's scolding her. So what does she do to show her mom respect? She looks at her. And what does her mom say? Don't look at me when I'm talking to you. Because that shows disrespect. Well, what's the proper way to show respect? Look at authority in the eyes or look down to the ground when the authority's talking? Yes. Yes. The answer is neither. It depends on the cultural context. It depends on the glass. Through Korean lenses, looking at the authority in the eye, that's great disrespect. But if my culture, if I'm, my daughter, if I'm talking to my daughter and she's looking down, like, look at me when I'm talking to you. That shows disrespect. Right? So it's different. 
Now, letter C. Now, this is important. Letter C, very important. If I don't know what life looks like through their glasses, then I can't know how they are understanding the things I communicate to them. Okay? If, I don't, if, I'm, if I'm talking to somebody cross-culturally, and especially when I'm explaining the gospel to them cross-culturally, and I don't know what life looks like through their glasses, then I can't possibly know how they understand the things that I'm saying to them. So think about this. Look at this, this, this uh, diagram here. In sharing the gospel cross-culturally, then, we should focus on understanding the worldview and, and seeing that worldview transformed, okay? Now, looking at this diagram, why is it important that we understand their worldview and challenge and see this worldview transformed when sharing the gospel? It changes, like, each layer, like, what they do, like, their behaviors and their values. Yeah, exactly. So the truth is, if, if I don't address this worldview, I can go on and explain and, and, and present a new belief system and even have them accept and adapt and, and receive and, and add on that new belief system. But if the worldview hasn't changed, I'm going to see little little change in their values and behavior. Right? They're just going to add it on. So I, I think a good illustration of that that we find in Acts. Look in, look in Acts, Acts chapter 8. Um, Philip is, is in Samaria. And he's bringing the gospel to the people in Samaria. Acts chapter 8, verse 5. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed Christ there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he said. With shrieks, evil spirits came out of many, and many paralytics and cripples were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Now, for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is the divine power known as the great power. They followed him because he amazed them for a long time with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that, the Samaria, that heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. When they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them, they had simply been baptized into the name of Jesus, of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Well, Peter answered, May your money perish with you, because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry, because your heart is not right, with, right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord, Perhaps he will forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon said, pray to the Lord for me, so that nothing you have said may happen to me. Now look what's happening here. Here's this guy named Simon. He's a sorcerer. He he's, has this power. He's amazing people with his power. 
And, and then Philip comes to town and he, he preaches and all these people get saved. And even Simon believes and is baptized. But, but when he sees the laying out of hands and the giving of the Holy Spirit, what does he want to do? I want that power. What does it cost? I'll pay you. Give me that power. Right? And, and the words that Peter speaks to him are very harsh. Uh, and, he, and then Philip's response is, well, pray for me that none of this happens to you. And so, as I, as I look at that passage, and I look at the, how Peter's words to him and his response, I'm thinking, Philip's not even a saved man. And we don't hear about Philip again, but we do read in church history that, that, that he became known as a great heretic and led many away, and even claimed at one point to be the Christ. And so, what happened here? What really happened here? Well, I think some things to remember. Letter A is that not all faith is saving faith, right? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, right? Um, Luke 8 talks about those who believed for a while and yet fell away. Letter B, saving faith is more than amazement at the power of God. In verse 9 and verse 11, it says that Philip had this power. He amazed the people for a long time with his power. But in verse 13, what does it say? He was astonished at Philip's power. So what seems to be the object of his faith? Power. He, he's a guy who dealt in power. <laughs> and he knew power. But when he saw Philip's power, he was astonished by that. And he followed Philip. But he seems to be following Philip just because of his power. And so let her see, faith in the miracles of God, apart from faith in the message of God, falls short of true saving faith. And so many cultures that we deal with, at the very base of their culture, there's a lot of this fear and power, fear of spirits, fear of these things. And so they're looking for what can give me uh, protection and power over these things. And so somebody like that, okay, you offer them power, you offer them Jesus who has power, and somebody who's dealing day by day with wanting power and protection over spirits, and you offer them Jesus who has power, do you think you're going to want Jesus? Sure, why not? I'll take Jesus and I'll put him in my pocket. In my left pocket, I have my charms and my bracelets and my, my spells and my curses, and now I got more protection. I got even more protection. I think what happens you ever, with a little kid, you ever point and say to some little kid, say, hey, look at that up there, right? But what does the kid look at? your finger, instead of what you're pointing to, and they totally miss it. And I, I think that's what's happening here. Philip is looking at the, the miracles and the signs and the wonders, and his faith is in that power, rather than those miracles and signs are pointing, pointing to God. And so, that's a good example of a new belief system. Philip added on maybe a new belief system, says he believed, was even baptized, but he didn't have really a, a, a transformation of his worldview. And so when, it came, when he saw the power of the Holy Spirit, he said, Give me, I, I'll pay you for that. I want that power. And so we see a little, little change in his, what he valued and how he behaved. So, number four. When we go in to share Christ, we need to what we call contextualize the gospel. Okay? So letter A, contextualization answers the question... How do we present the gospel in a way that clearly communicates how the gospel is good news to these people? So contextualization may be a simple way to say it. How do we make the gospel good news to this culture? 
Because it's different, in, in, in good news different to a Muslim than it is to a Buddhist than it is to an animist than it is to a Hindu. So give me an example from Buddhism, okay? Buddhists are, believe in reincarnation, right? And a Buddhist person believes they are stuck in the cycle of birth and death and rebirth. And, they're, and they're, the cycle goes on and on, right? And what I am born in this life and what happens to me in this life is based on my karma of my past life. Um, true story of missionary. In fact, I heard this at Bethlehem late, uh, earlier this year at a missions conference. A missionary from Cambodia was talking, and they showed the Jesus film. And the response from the, Khmer, the, the Cambodian people he shared it to was, wow, Jesus, he had died a terrible death. He had bad karma from his past life, and that's why he died on the cross. <laughs> so this death on the cross, which is good news to us, was not good news to this Cambodian Buddhist. All it meant was Jesus had bad karma, and he died this violent death, and maybe in his next life. How do we make the gospel good news? And so the goal is not to make the gospel more comfortable to the hear, but rather to make the gospel clear. To make the gospel clear. And, and that's, that's a high value of ours. How do we make the gospel clear? Not easier to understand, or not, not easier to, to accept, but, but make it easier to understand in, in, in the, the decision they're making in the cost of following Jesus. So the debate is not if we should contextualize, but rather how far should we go. Because if I under-contextualize... Right? I'm going to obscure the message. If I don't contextualize the message to this Buddhist monk, and I just share John 3.16 with him, he rejects a message he doesn't even understand, because I haven't taken time to, to, to explain to him how it's good news to him. If I, if I over-contextualize, they just might add on a belief system, a new belief system to the old existing belief system, and kind of like having on two pairs of glasses, Right? And then they're going to go to, they start going to church, but they still go to the witch doctor, and it's just a blending of religion. Is that even true conversion? And how long does that last among the people? So letter D then, contextualization begins with learning the culture. And so that's going to kind of be the focus tomorrow as we go out to the different, whatever world you go to visit tomorrow and come back. And as we talk, we're going to, we're going to be looking at their worldview lenses and trying to, when we come back, trying to talk about what is their worldview and what, is, what makes the gospel good news to those people. And so we're going out to practice being cultural learners. So contextual learning the culture helps us identify bridges and barriers. Okay? And let me make one point about this. You see there on the, on that page definition. So learning or identifying bridges and barriers within a culture. Okay? Bridges are those beliefs, values, social customs, behaviors in a people group that are similar but not equal to biblical teachings. Because of their similarity, the bridges can be used to communicate the gospel in a manner that communicates well within the perspective of a people group's world. We identify bridges and barriers. So barriers, definition, those beliefs, values, social customs, behaviors in a people group that are contradictory to biblical teaching. These are addressed during evangelism and are replaced by biblical teaching as they are discipled and mature in Christ. You know? And so... Um, this was in, in Iowa. Um, my, uh, my wife and I with, with a lot of people in the community there, and a girl named Katai, and she was going to Iowa State at the time. And Katai had grown up in Laos until she was about 14, and then her mom won the visa lottery, so her family came to America. She grew up in a Buddhist family. Um, all extended family were Buddhists. Her parents, very strong Buddhists. 
And of course, all of her ancestors were Buddhists. She grew up as a teenager going to Wat Simung, which is the main temple there in Vingchang where everybody goes and going there weekly and, and, and standing before Buddha and praying and those kinds of things. So this is how she grew up. Came to America, now she's in Iowa State, and she's curious about Christianity, the religion of Christianity. So, so um, through friends we met her and my wife and her, after a while in the Bible study, she asked this question. She said, do Buddhists go to hell when they die? What's the answer? Yes. Yeah, right? So how would you answer that question if she asked you? This, we were doing a Bible study with the Buddhists, and a few weeks into it, she said, do Buddhists go to hell? It's a tough one, right? I'll tell you what my wife answered. My wife said this. She said, hey, that's a really good question. Let's continue going through this study and see what the Bible says. Right? Because the study was aimed at her worldview. And so as, we, as my wife continued through the study with her, guess what? At the end of the study, she never once again asked that question. At the end of the study... She put her faith in Christ and knew that her parents were going to die and go to hell. And is began to try to reach her parents. At that moment, if she would have told me, yes, Buddhists go to hell, she said, I would have just said, that's fine, then that's your religion, I have my religion, and I would have walked away. And that was the key point that, that aimed at changing her worldview. And, and so seeing that transform. Okay, turn back to page nine then. We have this confusion in the marketplace, right? So then how did Paul avoid this confusion when he spoke in the Areopagus? Well, obviously he had done some cultural study, right? Because he said, I see, I've carefully looked at your objects of worship. And so he did some, some cultural learning. Um, and so principle number three is just this. Be a learner of the culture to identify bridges and barriers to sharing the gospel. Be a learner of the culture to identify bridges and barriers. So what does Paul do to share the good news more clearly, question eight, in the Areopagus than he did in the marketplace? Notice, notice what Paul didn't do when he went to the Areopagus to speak. Number one, he didn't start preaching at behavior, right? Don't worship idols. He didn't start with behavior. Notice what else he didn't do that he did in the marketplace. He didn't start in the middle of the story did he? He went back to the very beginning and he said, he, he talked about um, the God who made the Lord who made heaven and earth and everything in is not live in temples built by hands and, and he's not served by human hands if you need anything. So it begins by proclaiming who the one true God is and then he begins to speak to this worldview. He begins to, 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 to work through some of the barriers to understanding who God really and then he uses some bridges. What bridges did he use to share the gospel? See that you're very yeah, I see that you're very religious, right? And you even have what? To the, to the unknown God. Let me explain that to you. Uh huh. Another bridge. One other bridge that's mentioned. Yeah, he, he says, even your own poets have said. So he knows a little bit about culture, and he's pulling culture into it and quoting poets. Yeah, so he uses. He, he, he proclaims the true God. He removes those barriers. He uses the bridges. And then, and then it's a long time. And, and I'm sure he said a lot more words than what's recorded here. This is kind of synopsis. But, you know, he talked a long time before he even mentioned Jesus as he's laying out the whole story. And so 
at the end, then he calls for repentance. So principle number four is this. Share Christ in a way that clearly communicates how the gospel is good news to this culture. Second Corinthians 5 says that we are ambassadors, right? And that we've been entrusted this message of reconciliation. That is a great responsibility. And if we've been entrusted this message of reconciliation to share with other people, especially as we share it across cultures, we better do the work of learning that culture. And to be able to learn the culture, we have to know the language well to learn the culture so that we can present the gospel in a way that's good news to those people. So they don't reject a message that they don't even understand because we haven't done the work it takes to learn language, learn culture, to present it.